The following lecture was recorded in a classroom-like setting in which only the lecture was recorded. Because of this, the participation of the classroom cannot be heard. When someone asks a question or makes a comment, there will be a brief break in the audio. Once the question or comment is finished, the lecturer will begin speaking again. Thank you for understanding, and we hope you enjoy the message. Father, we thank you for another day of life. Help us to recognize that it is a gift from you to get to be alive again today. Help us to make the most of the time that you've given us. Help us to make the most of this evening that we have together as we seek to become better defenders of the faith, not just defenders against those who oppose us, but better presenters of the truth, better, uh, better at proving the truth to those who don't know you yet. We pray, Father, that as we spend time working on this tonight, that you would make us better apologists. Please help us to get better at demonstrating the truth of your existence to people. And in the process of learning how to do this, we pray that you would also fortify our own faith, that you would increase our own confidence in the truths of the gospel that we've come to believe uh, because of the work that you've done in our life. We pray that you would do this for your glory in us. We pray you'd do it out of your love for us. Make this time productive. Help us to be engaged. Help us to be focused. Uh, and cause us, Father, to walk out of here uh, with the ability uh, to demonstrate a, a, a very important truth, um, that this universe has not always existed, that it did have a beginning. And, uh, and Father, we pray that you would also help us, uh, if not tonight, the next time, uh, be able to demonstrate that you were the one who, uh, who did start this universe that we live in. We pray again that you would do this uh, for not only for your glory in us, but also for the sake of all of those in our lives who don't know you, uh, that we desire to be good witnesses to. It's in your name we pray all of these things. Amen. All right, well, I'm very glad that you're all here tonight. I have a new handout for you. I'm going to hand this around right now before we get started. Maybe you can just take this and pass it down. There's also some pens here. Does anybody need a pen? Anybody not have a pen? Maybe you can just hand this box around, too, in case anybody wants one. All right, we're in session four of our Proving Christianity series. You've made it through all the foundational material. Last week, we actually started on the project of Proving Christianity um, and uh, we talked about how there's more than one way to do this. Uh, there's more than one way to prove the truthfulness of Christianity. Um, and uh, I know we talked about some of the different approaches. The approach that we're going to be following from here on out is, uh, is called the classical approach. It's a, a two-step approach to proving that Christianity is true. The first step is to prove that God exists. And the second step is to prove that the true God is the Christian God. So tonight, we're going to begin acquiring the ability to perform that first step. Again, this entire series is about ability. It's about skill. It's not just about familiarity with this material. We want you to be able to do this on your own, to be able to prove that God exists on your own. Um, this argument that we're going to start learning tonight is a very useful argument. Um, I'm going to share it in two installments. We're going to learn the first part of it this time. We're going to learn the second part of it next time. And my hope is that by the end of these next two sessions, unless you're totally spacing out during this whole thing, uh, you'll have one very powerful argument down cold for proving uh, the existence of God. Uh, needless to say, proving the existence of God is a very important part of, uh, of proving Christianity, and I think that this will be very helpful for you to know how to do, uh, not only for all of those in your own life who don't believe that God exists. Uh, this will help you be able to better uh, convince them of that, persuade them of that. Um, but it should also be helpful for believers in your life who might, who might be going through a period of, of doubt. Uh, maybe there's no one like that now that you know, but if you're uh, in the church long enough, you probably will, uh, you probably will have brothers and sisters in Christ that, uh, that come to you with doubts from time to time 
and, uh, and having additional reasons aside from the personal relationship which we experience with Christ can be very helpful. Um, and again, this isn't just helpful for them. It can also be helpful for you. As we talked about uh, last time, the role of reason when it comes to our, our, our faith is one of helping us move from agreement or from comprehension of truths to agreement with those truths, right? So even though you already agree with the truth claims of Christianity, one of the most essential ones being that God exists, uh, seeing the additional reasons for that can help increase your agreement and boost your confidence in those truths that you already know to be true or already believe. So benefit for you, uh, beneficial for you, and beneficial for all the unbelievers in your life that you'll be to, uh, able to impact. And now when we talk about arguments for the existence of God, again, apologetics is all about giving reasons for the faith, and oftentimes reasons come in the form of arguments. Again, arguments are where you have multiple statements or multiple propositions logically working together to support a uh, a, a conclusion. Um, and so we're going to be learning one argument tonight for God's existence. Again, there are many different arguments for God's existence. We're going to learn three different kinds in this course, um, and that should give you a few different weapons uh, to fight for the faith with. So uh, tonight, the, uh, the one that we're going to be training in is a popular argument. It's called the Kalam cosmological argument. And I'll explain a little bit, uh, and I'll explain a little bit why it's called that. Um, but before we move on to learning something new, uh, again, we want you to be able to retain what you learn in this course and by the end of this time to be able to do all this on your own. Um, I hope you brought your hand out from last time. Does everyone have their hand out from last time? Previous handouts? All right, I just want you to take one minute, maybe two, to review the information from last time. Um, and if you don't have it with you, just try to review it in your head. Um, don't review the part about truth, about um, we talked about the correct view of truth and how to respond to false claims about truth. Don't review that part. Just review the parts about what apologetics is, how faith relates to reason, and the different types of arguments. Just take one or two minutes to kind of go over that on your sheet. And if you don't have it, then just pray that God would help you remember. Um, or, uh, or maybe look at, at the person next to you if they did a better job at bringing their notes to class. Yeah, you can, you can look at the one on the two-step approach, but specifically I want you to look at, yeah, that sheet. Here, do you mind if I hold yours up? As a good example, look at all of the notes that she has, too, on this. Very good. Front and, there you go, front and back. Wow. Did you do that yourself? That's amazing. Looks like the, uh, the workmanship of one of my kids. All right, you have one minute to review everything, and then remember it for the rest of this time. Uh-oh. All right, you know what? We're going to uh, skip this since it looks like many people don't have their notes with them. So I, uh, I hope that your memory will serve you well enough to go without that quick review. Um, but when you get home, uh, one of the reasons why I want you to do that really quick uh, was because it's very important to, uh, to review the information, that, that, that the material that, that we've uh, acquired together um, on a periodic basis in order to make sure that you don't that you don't lose it. Um, so just do that when you get home and, uh, and try to make it a point every few days, minimally every week, every couple of weeks, to just go over the uh, material that we've learned in class and, uh, and make sure that it doesn't fall out the other side of your head. All right, um, so the classical approach, which we are beginning to work on tonight, uh, starts with proving the existence of God first. However, um, last session, 
we talked about how since we live in a postmodern world, sometimes we have to start, uh, we have to step back even before that first step. Um, we have to go down to the basement, so to speak, and establish, first of all, that truth actually exists, right? That truth is real, that truth is knowable, and that truth is absolute. Um, now, we didn't have a chance to do this last time, and so I really would like to do this before we move on um, to this verse. Uh, I want us to take uh, a minute to practice uh, sharing the, uh, some of the things we learned about truth last time with each other. So here, here's what we're going to do. Um, if you don't have your notes from last time, it's all still up here, okay? Um, I want you to take uh, two minutes on your own before we get together with our exercise partner uh, to review what we learned about truth, and then we're going to get together and we're going to practice sharing it with each other. So again, just as a quick summary, what we learned about truth was that even though there's many different views of tr truth, the correct view of truth is the correspondence view of truth. Again, correct view, correct, is the correspondence view. That's your little mnemonic device there. And the correspondence view, as the name implies, is that truth is that which corresponds to reality. So the proposition that Kirk is a human being is true insofar as that corresponds to reality. I'm pretty sure that's true, by the way. Um, now, there's many false statements that people will make about truth. Sometimes a lot of people say there is no truth or that uh, truth is relative. Um, or I think the other one that we had on there was, uh, was that truth can't be known, right? Um, all false statements, all statements about truth that are false, falls on their own sword. Okay, so there's your other mnemonic. False falls on its sword. How so? If someone claims there is no truth, you ask them, is that true? Right? If someone says truth can't be known, you ask them, how do you know that? Right? If someone says that truth is relative, you ask them, is that truth relative? If they say, no, that truth's not relative, then it means that there are some truths that are absolute, that are true for everyone, everywhere, at all times. Right? If they say that, yes, all truth is relative, including that one, then you ask them, well, what happens if I say that relativism is false? If it's true, then that means that it's true that relativism is false. If they say no, that, uh, that what I believe isn't true, then relativism is also false. So again, in all cases, I just want you to remember that false claims about truth, false, falls on its sword. Okay, so if you have your handout, you can look at that. If not, just take one or two minutes to kind of internalize it, and I'm going to give you a, a chance to uh, practice sharing that with your, with your exercise partner. Yeah, correspondence view, that which corresponds to reality. All right, I'm just going to let you uh, get together with your exercise partner now. Again, don't waste these opportunities. This is so important. If you haven't heard somebody say any of these things, you will hear them say it at some point. Um, so you want to just take a moment to be prepared to respond to that when you hear it. Here's the other one, truth can't be known. And all I want you to do is in your ex with your exercise partner, again, I'm calling them exercise partner because you're not supposed to quiz each other or test each other. Like an exercise partner, you're there to kind of spot them and help them out and, 
and guide them towards the right answer if they're struggling with it. Let them try, obviously, but if they're not getting there easily, then, then help them get there. Um, the, uh, what I want you to do is, is uh, have the first person explain what the, what, what the correct view of truth is. Um, the reason why we know this is the correct view is because you can't deny it without assuming it. You can't deny that truth is that which corresponds to reality without making a claim that you believe corresponds to reality. So I want somebody to just define the, cor- the correct view of truth, and then the next person will respond to the statement, there is no truth. The person after that will respond to this statement, and the person after that will respond to this statement. So here you go. Person one does that. Person two does that. Person one does that. Person two does that. Got it? All right, exercise partner, you have just a few minutes to do this. I wanted to give you a chance to practice this before we move on to, uh, to the existence of God, because again, you will encounter this um, with at least some people that you talk to today, if you haven't already. So again, groups of two. Yes. Yeah. If you need to be in a group of three, that's fine, but try for groups of two.
All right, let's uh, let's wrap up that uh, that brief exercise session. Again, even if you felt like it didn't go very well, you just want to try giving it a shot to try to push yourself to think in these ways on your own, ideally without notes. If you have to use notes right now to kind of guide yourself, that's okay. But before we move on to a completely other topic, again, we didn't have a chance. To, we talked about this last time. We didn't have a chance to practice it, so I wanted to give you a chance to, uh, to put it to use before leaving it behind. Any questions on this, though, before we move on? Any questions? If you remember nothing else, just remember the mnemonic. Correct view is the correspondence view of truth. And any statements about truth that are false, falls on its sword. Just turn it back on itself. There is no truth. Is that true? Truth can't be known. How do you know that? Truth is relative. Is that truth relative? Right? They all fall on their own sword. Okay. All right. Let's move on to something a little bit more fun now. The basement. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead, Grandma. Yeah, it's okay. Can you give like an example? To me, it's like you're just moving words around. Mm-hmm. Can you give like, okay, you said there is no truth. So how would you respond? Yeah. Oh, so are you asking how, how do you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, if somebody said that to you, what would I say back? Yeah, you would ask them, is that true? That's it? Mm-hmm. Okay. And if they say yes, then obviously they've defeated themselves. Because if they've admitted that that statement is true, then of course they believe that there is truth. If they say no, then they've also defeated themselves because they said that what they just said isn't true. All right? Uh, and it, it, it's, uh, it's something that you can um, you know, spend some more... Uh, it, if, uh, I, I think this mnemonic is really helpful. If you think about how these claims are, uh, are philosophically suicidal, that they end up killing themselves, all you have to do is just kind of turn the statement back on itself and, uh, and it'll show itself to be an untenable position uh, because it really is self-refuting. The, the very claims that they make refute the claim that they're making. And it's interesting, false statements about truth have a tendency to do that. They have kind of a suicidal propensity, if you will. All right. Um, so, we know that truth exists, truth is knowable, and truth is absolute. So what is the truth? Uh, is the truth that God exists or is the truth that he doesn't exist? Uh, we're going to learn arguments for the existence of God. We'll also learn one argument against the existence of God and how to refute it. Um, but the first step in our classical approach is to learn how to prove that God exists. Um, and then from there, we'll move on to proving that the God that exists is, in fact, the God of the Bible, uh, Yahweh, the Christian God who's made himself known in Christ. Um, we, I think we had talked about if not last time, then the very first session, uh, there are many different ways of knowing that God exists. If you talk with the average Christian and you ask them, how do you know that God exists? They're probably not going to pull out you know, the cosmological argument for God that we're going to learn tonight. Um, they will probably tell you because God's changed their life and they know him personally, right? And that's a perfectly acceptable reason for knowing that God exists. Uh, having a personal relationship with somebody is one of the best ways that you can know truths about them. Um, now, aside from having that personal relationship with God, we also know that God has made himself known to mankind. He's revealed himself to mankind. And we talked last time about general revelation, which is what he's made known about himself to all people generally and through general means like the natural world. And we also talked about special revelation, which is the way God's revealed himself to mankind in a supernatural way. Most 
Uh, most commonly, we think of the scriptures in this category, um, or perhaps even the person of Christ. Um, and that revelation is, uh, isn't necessarily available to all of mankind. Not everyone has access to the Bible, for example. Um, it's, more, it's for a more limited audience. Um, but, uh, but the Bible ascribes value to both of these forms of revelation, general revelation and, uh, and uh, special revelation. As we talked about last time, Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. You have something about God being revealed through the natural world. And we also talked about Romans 1 last time where Paul says in verse 20 that God's invisible attributes, specifically his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In what? In the things that have been made. So creation reveals, obviously, not only the existence of God, but it reveals a number of attributes about God, too. Um, and, uh, and this is a very helpful starting point for us with unbelievers. Um, an unbeliever that you know, in your, uh, either maybe in your family or your workplace or a friend that you have or whatever, um, they might not acknowledge the Bible as God's word. They probably don't if they're not a believer. But guess what? They still live in the same world that you do. Um, and many important truths about their creator are being revealed to them through the creation that they live in. Uh, so that's a great, that's a great um, source of common ground that you can have in your conversations with them. Uh, there's many different aspects of creation that can teach us things about our creator. We talked last time about three different categories of arguments. Uh, the fact that anything exists at all is evidence that, uh, that somebody or something brought all of this into existence. That's the type of argument we're going to be learning tonight. That's called the cosmological argument. And then there's also things that we can learn about creator, uh, about the creator um, by the nature of the things that exist, right? We don't just live in a world that's a, an amorphous blob of, uh, of nothing. We live in a world that's filled with things uh, that, uh, that give evidence of being brilliantly designed, right? And so that's another source of, uh, of, uh, of revelation about the person who made this. Um, those are just a couple of examples of how uh, about, about how different aspects of the created world that we, we live in uh, can reveal things about God to us. Um, so, and both of those different types of, uh, of, uh, um, of arguments that, that I mentioned, arguments from design, arguments from existence, uh, there's many different arguments that, uh, that, that people have made throughout history in both of those uh, categories. And tonight we're going to begin acquiring the ability to employ an argument in that first category. Um, so an argument from the existence of the universe. These are called cosmological arguments. Cosmos is a word that's sometimes used to refer to the universe. And so when we're talking about a cosmological argument, we're talking about an argument that proves the existence of God by means of the existence of the universe. So it infers or entails the existence of God by uh, observing the existence of the, uh, of the universe. Um, in church history, St. Anselm, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, there are two figures uh, that have been proponents of, uh, of cosmological arguments, types of cosmological arguments. Um, these are very powerful weapons, uh, very powerful apologetic weapons for proving God's existence. And, uh, and generally speaking, you can kind of group these weapons, these arguments, in two different uh, weapons class, if you will, two different types of uh, uh, they kind of come in two different, two different forms. I'm going to erase this. Is everyone okay with me getting rid of this now? Okay. I hope you understand what truth is because that was your last chance to find out. All right. So when it comes to cosmological arguments, again, they're all dealing with the existence of things, oftentimes dealing with the existence of the whole universe, but not necessarily we just imagine this blob as the universe. There are some cosmological arguments 
that prove the existence of God. from the fact that the universe had a beginning. So that there was a starting point to all of this. These, you don't have to write this down. This is just for your, just for your own knowledge. Uh, these are sometimes called horizontal cosmological arguments. Sometimes they're called temporal arguments because they depend on the universe having a beginning. Okay? Uh, there's another, there are other, the other type of cosmological arguments are what are called Vertical arguments, and vertical arguments, as you can guess, prove that God exists. Sorry, I should have wrote God down here. Prove that God exists because the universe exists without requiring to demonstrate that the universe had a beginning. So some arguments rely on the universe having a beginning to prove God exists. Other arguments don't rely on the universe having a beginning to prove God exists. Um, there's arguments, there's, there's good cosmological arguments in both of these, uh, in both of these uh, categories. Um, in fact, some people would say that vertical arguments, um, a really well-formulated vertical argument, is probably stronger than a well-formulated horizontal argument. But we're going to be learning a horizontal argument um, tonight. And, uh, and the reason why is because I think it's more intuitive and, uh, and probably more helpful for evangelism, too. Uh, sometimes the vertical arguments can get a little too... Um, a little too philosophical for, uh, for them to be uh, as useful as you might want them to be in an ordinary uh, evangelism com- conversation. Um, any questions on those two different types? Different types? Pretty straightforward. Um, the one that we're going to be learning, um, I've actually used in, uh, in the conversations that we've had uh, with people through the Public Theology Show. So the, the one that we're going to be uh, starting to learn tonight is one that I find very helpful personally, and I think that you'll, you'll find helpful too. Um, just so you can be familiar with what a vertical argument looks like. Again, you don't have to write this down. This is just for, for your own knowledge. Uh, here's, a, here's a formulation that's modified um, from an argument uh, that's sometimes referred to as the, um, the Leibniz uh, contingency argument. I think I actually uh, shared it in, I shared a video on it in one of the Fight for the Faith Friday videos a while ago. Um, but here's an example of a, of a vertical argument that proves the existence of God from the existence of the universe without having anything to do with whether or not the universe had a beginning. It doesn't depend on the universe having a beginning. Here's just an example for you to listen. Everything that exists either exists because it was caused by something else or by necessity of its own nature. The universe doesn't have to exist. Therefore, the universe was caused by something else. So that's one way to prove the existence of God from the existence of the universe without appealing to the, um, to the fact that the universe had a beginning. You say, well, that just gets you to the fact that the universe was caused by something else. That's true. But when you do a, a deeper um, exploration of what that something else must, must be, uh, you come to discover a number of, of, uh, of, of really hugely significant uh, attributes about what, what this something must be. So, for example, since the universe is all of space, all of matter, and all of time, that means that whatever causes the universe to exist must transcend those things because it exists logically prior to those things. That means that whatever causes the universe to exist must itself be spaceless, non-material or non-physical, and timeless. And then think about this. If it's timeless, then that means that it must also be unchanging. right? You can't change if there's no succession of moments in your being, if there's not a before and after. And not only is it unchanging if it's timeless, if it's timeless, it also had no beginning. So it's an eternal being. 
So you have a spaceless, an immaterial, a timeless, and a uh, unchangeable eternal being just by thinking about what the universe is and the fact that, um, and the fact that, uh, that something had to start it. Right? Or not, not start it. We're not talking about it having a starting point. Just that something either causes it or explains it. Okay? So that's an example of a vertical argument. I didn't want to totally uh, ignore that, that, uh, that weapons class, if you will, um, before, uh, before moving on to the type that we're actually going to, to study and seek to learn well ourselves. Any questions on that? Okay. Um, so the argument that we're going to be trained in depends on the finitude of the past. That is, that there really was a beginning to the universe. Um, the argument that we're learning depends on that. And so it's very important, the argument's going to work, uh, it's very important that you're able to demonstrate to people that the universe did actually have a beginning. And, uh, and we're going to learn how to do that tonight. Uh, it's actually easier to do than you might, uh, than you might expect. And this argument is called the Kalam. I'm going to put that up here. It is an Arabic term. So the type, it's oh, a terrible pen, doesn't work. So the specific type of horizontal argument that we're going to be learning is called the Kalam, cosmological argument. Kalam is an Arabic term, and it's used uh, to refer, at least according to one dictionary, um, Islamic scholastic theology, or Islamic philosophical theology. Um, one of the uh, uh, champions of this particular argument um, in history was a Muslim theologian, uh, Al, um, Al-Ghazali. He lived during the 11th and 12th century. And, uh, and you say, well, why are we learning an argument that was championed by Muslims? Um, well, the, uh, the argument that, that we're learning proves the existence of a God, right? As with all of the theistic proofs, as with all of the arguments for God. They don't prove the existence of the Christian God specifically. Additional arguments are necessary to show that the God that exists is in fact the God that's revealed himself in the scriptures. Um, but, uh, but this argument uh, has not only been championed by Muslims, there are also uh, Christians that have taken this argument and, uh, and, and run with it. William Lane Craig is probably the most notable uh, proponent of this particular argument today. In fact, if I had to guess, this is, pro- this is probably his favorite argument and the one that he spent the most time uh, working on. And, uh, and I've been very influenced by him uh, when it comes to apologetics. In fact, a lot of what you're going to hear tonight, much of what you're going to hear tonight, is, uh, is his material and his, lang- and his language and his phrasing. Um, however, I am going to frame the argument differently than he does. Uh, I'm going to tell you the way he frames it, just in case you feel more comfortable using his than using mine. I understand, if uh, that's what you want to do. Um, but I'm going to, I'm going to share the, the way that, that I like to, to, to frame it with you instead, and, uh, and that's the one that we're going to walk through. Um, so here's how, here's how Cra- uh, Craig formulates this, uh, this argument. Um, his first premise is that whatever begins to exist has a cause. His second premise is that the universe began to exist. Therefore, the conclusion is that the universe has a cause. And then, of course, just like with the argument we talked about before, he proceeds to do a conceptual analysis of what this cause must be. Um, and again, since the universe is all space, matter, and time, the cause must be spaceless, immaterial, and timeless, and then also extremely powerful to create the universe out of nothing and uncaused. Otherwise, there would be an infinite regress of causes. And then because of the fact that the universe is timeless, again, the cause must also be unchanging and beginningless or eternal. And then he gives an additional argument to explain why that cause must be a personal being. Don't worry if you don't remember all of that right now. Uh, we're going to get back to some of those uh, entailments um, some of those incredible things we can learn about the cause just by 
uh, thinking rationally about what that cause must be like. Um, but I just wanted to give you an idea of how he frames the argument. Um, if you want to use it, you can go back and look up some of his works later and, uh, and learn his way of doing it. Here's the way that, uh, that I'm going to share this with you. I'm going to erase this again. First of all, does anyone remember what we said the role of reason was? Why did God give us reason? What is it a tool for doing? Does anyone remember from our, it's probably our first session? Anyone? So reason helps us discern and discover the truth. Right? It helps us discern and discover the truth. That's one of the reasons, pun intended, that God gave it to us. Um, this argument that we're learning, it has two movements. The first movement is uh, using reason to demonstrate that the universe did in fact have a cause. Something caused the universe. And then the second movement is to analyze what that cause must be like. So the first movement answers the question, did the universe have a cause? And the second movement answers the question, what is the cause like? Make sense? Okay, we're going to work on the first movement tonight. Again, I don't want... Uh, we actually want to learn this and remember this, so we can't take in too much information at once. Otherwise, uh, it's not going to have the effect that we want, which is for, for us to be able to walk out and share this uh, on our own with people. All right, so here's the way I'm going to formulate it. Again, this is differently than Craig's, um, but it still follows the same two movements. First, uh, does the universe have a cause? And second, what is it like? Um, this is where you're going to start filling things in on your paper. So if you've had your paper and you've been patiently waiting while I share additional information that you don't need to remember, now's the time to start remembering things. All right, so um, the first premise that we're going to work with is that the universe started to exist. The universe started to exist. The second premise is that either something started it Or nothing started it. And the third premise is that it wasn't nothing. Which leads us to the conclusion that therefore something started the universe. Okay, The universe started to exist. Either something started it or nothing started it. It wasn't nothing. I'll make this a little bit clearer. It wasn't started by nothing. Sorry, I don't know if you had that on your page. And the conclusion, of course, is that something, therefore, must have started it. Um, and then we would want to go on to think a little bit more deeply about what that something must be. So again, this just answers the first question, which is, is there a cause? And the answer is yes, there was a cause. Something started the universe. All right, now what kind of argument is this? Is this an inductive argument or is this a deductive argument? Yes. If you're going to be a consistent atheist, you're going to have to deny one of these premises. 
So they'll either deny that the universe actually had a beginning, or they'll deny that the universe can't come from nothing. They'll say that, that the universe did come from nothing. So they have to deny one of those two things if they're going to be consistent. Now, no, definitely not universally accepted. Yeah. If it were, there would be a lot fewer atheists. Um, so, uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we're going to talk about all of these premises more because the point is that if someone doesn't accept these, you're going to have to prove them to them, right? Um, not everyone will accept these. Some people will, um, which we'll talk about in a second. But, uh, but first of all, what type of argument are we, are we dealing with here? Is this an inductive argument or a deductive argument? Draw back from your memory a couple of weeks ago. Okay, what makes you say that? Well, it was a good guess because you're right. It is deductive. Good job. All right, remember, deductive statements decrease in size as they move towards the conclusion. Why is it significant? Because in a deductive argument, if everything works right, the conclusion is decisive. It necessarily follows that the conclusion is true if the premises are true. Uh, you're 100% certain of the conclusion if the premises are true. Um, so yes, this is a deductive argument. If you look at, I, I, this is a more casual framing of the argument that I have up here, but if you just look at premises two and three, for example, um, you know, the idea that either something started the universe or nothing started it, that's a broader, more general statement than the fact that something started the universe, right? So you're going from something broader, bigger, more general to a more specific conclusion, particular conclusion. Um, that's a, one of the sure signs that we're working with the deductive argument here. Um, a more technically accurate way to frame this would be to say that the universe started to exist and then to add a statement in here saying that everything that starts to exist is either started by something or nothing. And then that would lead us to the conclusion, which is the second premise, that either something started the universe or nothing started it, and then that leads us down the rest of it. I didn't put that in there just because you don't need to say that when you're talking to someone about this. Um, it's, uh, it's kind of a understood um, premise, if you will. Uh, but if you were to frame it out better, um, you would see that, yes, this is a deductive argument or perhaps kind of two deductive arguments sandwiched together there. Um, but for simplicity's sake, I have it framed in a more casual way. Again, this is significant uh, because if everything is working correctly, um, then the conclusion necessarily follows. Now let's talk about, again, what does it mean for an argument to work well? What is a good argument? Do you remember this? We spent some extra time on this. What makes for a good argument? Three, three ingredients, remember? The notes would be helpful. The notes would... <laughs> had your notes. Is the argument valid? Is it sound? And is it persuasive? Okay, valid is asking, does this part plus this part equals this part? Sound is asking, is this part true and is this part true? And persuasive is asking, will the people I'm trying to convince believe these parts or accept these parts? Right? An argument must have all three of those things if it's a good argument. So, is this argument valid? Do these parts add up to the conclusion? At least in the more technical framing that I talked about, if I were to kind of flesh it out, flesh it out more and filled in the pieces there, yes, all these parts would add up to the conclusion. So, if that's the case, the only question that we have to ask if yeah, this is a valid argument and these premises do lead to this conclusion, which it does, the only question we have to ask is, are these premises sound? Are the premises true? And of course, since you have a correct view of truth, 
you know that truth is that which corresponds to reality. So if we want to know, are these premises true, what we're really asking is, do these statements correspond to reality, right? And that's what we need to find out. If they do, then the conclusion necessarily follows. It necessarily follows from these premises that something started the universe, again, because it's a deductive argument. Okay, let me pause there. Any questions on that? Now, determining the truthfulness of these premises is really a matter of examining the evidence for these things, examining the arguments for these things. Um, and when you employ this argument, obviously you're going to want to be able to show your friends and your family why these statements are true. Um, but let me, just, let me just pause for a second there. Do you think, just kind of at a cursory glance, do you think that this could be a persuasive argument for somebody? Could you see an unbeliever agreeing with these three statements? Right? They could. And one of the things I was going to say is that you might actually have unbelievers in your life. You might have people in your life who don't believe that God exists, but they do believe that the universe hasn't always been around, and they also believe that it would be impossible for the universe to come from nothing. What they don't recognize yet is that if they believe those things, then it necessarily follows that God exists. And so for somebody that already accepts these premises, you're going to have uh, very little work to do. Uh, all you have to do is show them that it logically follows that something started the universe and that, that something is in fact God. Much easier to do than you think. Um, however, if you, uh, if, if you um, know somebody who doesn't believe that God exists and they're a little bit more studied, um, then they're going to know that in order for them to be consistent, they have to deny one of these things. They have to. Um, because again, this is a valid argument, and if these statements are true, the conclusion necessarily follows. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, so that's what we're going to do next, right? Um, so we're going to examine uh, each of these premises and learn um, how to demonstrate the truthfulness of these statements to people. Um, and, uh, and the next time we're going to learn how to, how to show that the something that started the universe is in fact God, uh, like you heard me kind of briefly, briefly fly over um, in, uh, in the earlier examples today. All right, hopefully you're already starting to see some of the foundational things we learned paying off. Um, the ingredients for an argument, deductive versus inductive, why deductive is important because the conclusion is sort of follows. That's, that's why we learned that stuff. So if you felt like it was tedious at the time and you're wondering, why are we spending time you know, working on this? There's reasons. Again, pun intended. Reasons for that. Yeah, Tina. Yeah, it, um, with, uh, with the mix of people from, um, from either religious or non-religious backgrounds. Yeah, atheist, agnostic. Um, I'm uh, trying to think of religious, maybe. Mm-hmm. 
Actually, this is, uh, I think, one of the arguments I used to the person who's now doing a Bible study uh, with me on campus, so, um, who came either as an atheist or perhaps as an agnostic. I don't know how confident he was in his atheism. Um, but yeah, the, these are useful arguments. Uh, and if someone doesn't believe that God exists, again, they're going to have to deny one of these statements. Um, and, uh, and you might have somebody who's, who's uh, unwilling to think rationally, um, but if somebody is, uh, is, is, uh, um, is really wants to, uh, to actually um, think seriously about these things, again, the conclusion necessarily falls from these premises. So if they agree with you on points one through three, um, they also have to agree with you on the conclusion. Not optional. Um, to deny the conclusion, and no, no secular philosopher is going to is going to, to deny the fact that the conclusion follows from these premises. Um, they recognize that they have to deny one of the premises, and that's that's where the uh, that's where the battle really takes place. Um, and so that's why we're going to spend some time learning how to defend uh, each of these premises. All right, so uh, let's look at this a little bit more. So the the one that we're going to spend time learning how to defend tonight is probably the one that's the most involved. Um, it's this first premise right here, proving that the universe started to exist. Is it possible to prove that the universe actually had a beginning? It seems like a pretty big thing to prove. Is it possible to do? Obviously, I believe it is. Otherwise, we wouldn't be, we wouldn't be uh, putting that in an argument here. Um, Craig offers uh, two scientific evidences and two philosophical evidences uh, to demonstrate that the universe had a beginning. There are a number of different ways to prove this. I'm going to share the four uh, evidences that he provides. Um, you do not have to remember all of these. Okay, we're, I'm going to share four evidences with you. You're only going to learn one. You're only going to learn one of the philosophical evidences. The other three I'm just going to touch on more briefly just so that you can kind of be aware of some of the other ways that we know that the universe um, did have a uh, beginning. I just want you to be kind of familiar with them. Um, but there's only one that I want you to actually be able to share on your own. I'm trying to see if I'm going to have enough room to do this here. I think I will. Enough room. So let's uh, let's talk about scientific evidences first. Scientific evidences that the universe had a beginning. All right. So the uh, again, I'm going to give you two in each category: scientific and philosophical. Um, so the first is that uh, is is the uh, expansion of the universe. What do I mean by that? Again, you don't have to write this down or anything if you don't want to. This is just additional information. So the expansion of the universe is, uh, is a scientific phenomenon that actually the most, um, that underlies the kind of standard model, uh, scientific model today uh, for understanding the origins of the universe, uh, oftentimes referred to as, as the Big Bang. Um, the, uh, when I talk about the universe expanding, more specifically what I'm referring to is the fact that space itself is expanding and, uh, and that galaxies at rest in space are also moving further apart from each other. You say, why is that significant um, when it comes to the universe having a beginning? Uh, the answer is because, and you may have, you may have seen this in, uh, maybe in science textbooks or perhaps in, uh, you know, on, on science shows on TV or something. Maybe you've seen the picture of the balloon, right, where the balloon has, uh, has little stickers on it or buttons on it. And, uh, and as you blow up the balloon, the stickers on the balloon kind of move further apart um, because the surface of the balloon is getting wider and wider and wider, right? And sometimes that's used as an analogy for the universe because space itself, as it, um, as it, uh, as, as it inflates, as it expands, um, the, uh, the, uh, 
the, the heavenly bodies are moving further and further apart from each other. Um, now, the reason why that's uh, a significant source of scientific evidence uh, for the fact that the universe had a beginning, and one of the reasons why it's also one of the uh, scientific phenomena today that underpins the, the, the Big Bang model, is because if you kind of logically reverse that process, and you let the air out of the balloon, so to speak, what happens to the balloon? Right, it contracts down. It contracts down. And so if you think of the, here's a picture, bad picture of the universe, okay? If we're noticing that the universe is expanding, getting bigger, and we say, well, I wonder what happened before this, we can extrapolate that expansion back, and what do we arrive at? We arrive at a beginning point. Now, the, uh, the secular calculations for when this beginning point occurred are, last I checked, 13.8 billion years ago, which I do not believe is correct as a Christian, and nor do you have to either. But the point is that the fact that the universe is expanding um, uh, points to the, uh, the reality that the universe actually did have a, uh, a beginning point. Um, and, uh, and that beginning point occurred a finite period of time ago. A finite period of time ago, the universe actually started. Um, now, it's possible, to see, it's, uh, it's possible to see how somebody working on purely naturalistic assumptions uh, could arrive at the conclusion that the universe is, in fact, this old. If you're having to explain the universe by purely natural forces, you're going to, um, you're going to come to the conclusion that, uh, that this beginning point um, was you know, somewhere 13, 14 billion years ago. Now, as, as Christians, um, we, uh, we know that the universe did have a beginning, but we're not bound by the same secular, naturalistic uh, presuppositions that many scientists today are. Um, we know that the universe is not merely a product of natural forces, and so we're able to look at scientific evidence and biblical evidence uh, that support a younger Earth time scale um, and, uh, and recognize that the universe ex is expanding. Um, but based on those additional sources of evidences, we don't have to extrapolate that back, that expansion back to a beginning point uh, 13.8 billion years ago. Um, we know that uh, that creation was a supernatural act of God, and for all he know, for all we know, um, he uh, he spoke um, the universe into existence at uh, at the inflation point that it was um, 10,000 years ago, or maybe the inflation occurred at a much more rapid rate than uh, than what we would. Uh, than what the current, um, uh, than what the natural force that we're working with today uh, which would suggest to us. Um, so at any rate, uh, even though we're not bound to accept this, uh, this, um, uh, the, the, the secular uh, time frame, um, I still think that the expansion of the universe can be a useful piece of scientific evidence for us, um, a, a useful piece of evidence uh, to, uh, to, help, um, uh, to help point to the fact that the universe uh, did in fact start to exist at, uh, at some point, that it did have a beginning. Um, and, uh, and the reason why is because even, um, uh, it, it shows that even on naturalistic terms, in other words, considering only natural phenomena, um, current natural forces make a beginning point very, very difficult to avoid. All right, any questions on that? Again, you don't have to remember this. This is more just for the sake of you being familiar with some of the additional evidences that we have for the universe actually not being past eternal. No questions on that one? All right, the, uh, the second piece of scientific evidence has to do with the second law of thermodynamics. Now, hopefully when you hear me say that, you're not 
um, rolling your eyes back and, and uh, having bad memories of your physics class in high school. Um, formally stated, the second law, this is from Craig's book, quote, according to the second law of thermodynamics, processes taking place in a closed system always tend toward a state of equilibrium. In other words, unless energy is constantly being fed into a system, the processes in the system will tend to run down and quit. If that went over your head, that's okay. The basic implication for the universe is that the universe has a limited amount of energy to use, a limited amount of usable energy, and as one source said, it's slowly running out of it. Okay, so the universe has a limited amount of energy to use, and it's slowly running out, out of it. It's kind of like a battery. I'm just going to put second law here. It's kind of like a battery that you see on your phone, right? And you have those little bars. shows you how that bar is, and it's slowly running down. The energy level is slowly going down over time. And uh, the reason why this matters um, in case you're wondering, uh, as, uh, as Craig says, I'll read to you again, he says, quote, in the 19th century, scientists realized the second law implied a grim prediction for the future of the universe. Given enough time, all the energy in the universe will spread itself out evenly throughout the universe, just as the gas spreads itself out evenly through a bottle. The universe will become a featureless soup in which no life is possible, it is a state of equilibrium in which temperature and pressure are the same everywhere, and scientists called this the heat death of the universe. So if the universe continues to stay on this track, eventually it's going to run out of energy and it will mean no more life anywhere in the universe. Okay, that's the fate of the universe um, on a secularist uh, paradigm. Um, now, what do you think this has to do with the beginning of the universe? Just think about that for a second. What, what would this mean if the universe has always existed? Right. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, you, you go first, and then Tim. Yeah. So, so yeah. So you can say that. Um, I, I, I think some scientists would say that there was a, a high level of energy at the beginning of the universe, and that we're continuing to draw down on that. But what, what, what did you say, Tim? Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah, so, so Tim just said that, that uh, um, if heat death is the fate of the universe, then it, we would have run out of energy a long time ago, right? If the universe really was infinitely old, this fate would have happened already, right? So we've had an infinite amount of time to get there. It would have happened already. Not only that, how long ago would it have, would it have happened? It would have happened an infinite amount of time ago, Right? If we've had an infinite amount of time to run out of energy, we surely would have run out of energy by now, and not only would we have run out by now, we would have run out an infinite number of years ago. All right, but clearly that hasn't happened. We haven't reached a state of equilibrium yet. Um, and so what does that mean? What does that mean? Right, that the past doesn't go on forever, right? That, uh, that the universe has only been around for a limited amount of time, which means that the, uh, the universe has a finite age, that it actually did have a beginning, right? Um, any questions on that? There's a couple scientific evidences for you. All right. I'm glad that's super clear. More importantly, more importantly, there are 
philosophical evidences, a number of different philosophical evidences for the beginning of the universe. Craig offers two. I'm going to share his with you. The first one is the one that you want to learn. Okay, so again, if you've been tuning out, now's the time to refocus again. And this is what that lovely little drawing that I made for you on your sheet has to do with. Um, so philosophical evidences. I'm not alone in thinking this, by the way, but I personally believe that the philosophical evidences may be even stronger than the scientific evidences that we've discussed for the universe having a beginning. And I think you'll see why uh, when I share them with you. Um, we're only going to learn this first one. Um, the other one I'm going to share with you briefly, but again, I just wanted you to be aware of these additional evidences um, for the sake of your own information. Uh, now, it's important to understand what we're talking about, first of all, when we're referring to an actually infinite number of things, an actual infinite. Um, I have a, you'll see on your handout, um, I have a few uh, blanks I want you to fill in there. Um, so this is similar to the way Craig puts it. When we're dealing with an actual infinite, okay, we're talking about a collection of things, a collection of things where the number of things is greater than any finite number. So an actual infinite is a collection of things where the number of things is greater than any finite number. So an actually infinite number of things is not just a really big number. It's not just like a million or a billion or a trillion or a Google. Okay, we're talking about a set, a collection of things whose number is greater than any natural number, any finite number. Let me ask you a question. Can you count to infinity? Just think about that for a second. Just everyone take 15 seconds silently. Think about that. Is it possible to count to infinity? Is it possible to count to infinity? All right. I hear people saying no. Why not? Why don't you think it's possible? Okay, because it keeps on going, right? Yeah. Yeah, so you said it keeps on going, there's no end. That's good. What if you had an infinite amount of time to do it? Could you count to infinity? People are still shaking their heads now. Why not? What if you could live forever? You just keep going, keep counting, keep counting, keep counting. Are you ever going to get there? No. You're never going to get there, right? As Craig says, I'm going to quote from him again, quote, No series that is formed by adding one event after another can be actually infinite. For you cannot pass through an infinite number of elements one at a time. You can't do it. I'm going to elaborate on this a little bit more. Um, uh, Peter Kreeft and, uh, and Ronald Ticelli, they're both Catholic philosophers. I believe they're actually both professors at Boston University. Um, they present this evidence in an apologetics book, book that, uh, that they wrote together. I'm going to be adapting some of their presentation for you. Um, as you guys said, you were you, you, you right on the dot. Um, the reason why you can't count to infinity it's because there is always one more step, right? Um, and in fact, we would say there's not just always one more step ahead of you. There's always an infinite number of steps ahead of you, right? No matter how far you get, you still have how far to go? An infinite ways to go, right? And so even if you live forever, even if you have all the time in the world, you're never, ever, ever going to count to infinity. An infinite task can never 
be completed. An infinite task can never be completed. Okay, here's how these two authors that I just talked about put it. Quote, can an infinite task ever be completed? If, in order to reach a certain end, infinitely many steps had to precede it, could the end ever be reached? Of course not. Not even in an infinite time, as we just talked about. For an infinite time would be unending, just as the steps would be. In other words, no end would ever be reached. The task would, could, never be completed. And then they ask, well, what about the step just before the end? Could that point ever be reached? What do you think? Could that point ever be reached? The step just before the end? No, right? They continue on, continuing on, quote, well, if the task really is infinite, then an infinity of steps must also have preceded it. And therefore, the step just before the end could also never be reached. Um, but then neither could the step just before that one. In fact, no step in the sequence could be reached because an infinity of steps must always have preceded any step. Um, you must have always gone through one step, uh, gone, through it, uh, gone through each step one by one before it. So I'm going to frame it in an analogy that I hope will make this a little bit, a little bit clearer for you. Um, imagine that you're, this is what the drawing is for you, so you can um, fill this in. Imagine that you're on a, on a staircase, And it's an infinite staircase. This little infinity sign, by the way, that's an infinity sign if you don't know what that is. Um, and imagine that on this infinite staircase, there's an infinite number of stairs behind you. You look behind you, there's an infinite number of stairs going down. And you look ahead of you and there's an infinite number of stairs going up. And I'm there at the very top of the stairs. I'm at the very top of this infinite staircase. Here's me. Here's you down here. It's just an analogy. It doesn't, doesn't work in real life. But th this is a, there are no infinite staircases in real life. Um, but in this analogy, I'm here at the top. Okay, if you start walking towards me right now, will you ever get to me? Will you ever reach me? No, you're never going to get there. And the reason why, again, is because Why will you never get there? Right. There's an infinite number of steps to cross over. And again, if you have an infinite amount of time, that's not going to change things, right? You can live forever. You're still never going to get to me. There's still always going to be more steps to cross. And that is why an infinite distance can't be crossed. That's one of your notes there on the handout. An infinite distance can't be crossed. By crossed, it's important to know I mean that you can't go through them one at a time at a time. You can't cross them. Why? This is the other thing on your handout. No matter how far you are, there's always an infinite number of steps left before me. So no matter how far you get on the staircase, no matter where you are, there's always an infinite number of steps left before you get to me. So an infinite distance can't be crossed, and there's always an infinite number of steps left before me. Now, here's the problem. Are you ready? I'll wait until you're finished with this, because this is where it all kind of comes together. If you can't reach me because there's an infinite number of steps to cross, how did you get to where you are? Well, if there really were 
an infinite number of steps before you, you couldn't have gotten there, right? If there were an infinite number of steps before you, you could not have gotten here. The same way you can't get to me, because you'd have to cross an infinite number of steps, you couldn't have gotten to where you are, because you'd have to cross an infinite number of steps to get there. Right? It's impossible to get to me, but if we're pretending like you have an infinite number of steps behind you, then that means you would have had to cross an infinite number of steps to get to where you are, right? Which we know is impossible to do. So that means that if you're on the staircase at all, there must not have been an infinite number of steps before you. Okay, if you're on the staircase at all, and there's any steps behind you, it must have been a finite number of steps, a limited number of steps. Otherwise, you couldn't have crossed them to get to where you are. In fact, you couldn't have crossed them. You couldn't have gone to the step before you because you would have had to cross an infinite number of steps to get to that one too. And you couldn't have gotten to the step before that or the step before that or the step before that as you would have had to cross an infinite number of steps to get to there. All right, so I think I have this on your handout too. If an infinite number of steps preceded this one, we never would have gotten to this one. Okay, and that's the key. If an infinite, and you can write that down in your handout, if an infinite number of steps have preceded this one, we never would have gotten to this one. Any questions on this analogy? I'm going to show you how this analogy applies to reality in just a second. But please, this is the time for us to make this clear. Each, we have to make sure, before we move on in this argument, that we're crystal clear on how each step works. Because okay, if you're not able to do one of these, this argument's going to be useless to you. Unless somebody already believes that the universe has a beginning, then you're on good footing. Any questions on the staircase analogy? We all get why you can't get to me. There's an infinite number of steps between us. And we all get that you couldn't have even gotten to this step if there were an infinite number of steps before you. Because an infinite distance can't be crossed. If an infinite number of steps preceded this one, we never would have gotten to this one. Does that make sense? Any questions on that? No questions. I'm impressed. That's good. I hope it's not because you're spacing out. Because okay, this is really important. This is really important. How does this analogy translate to reality? How does it translate to time? Well, let's just pretend that the steps are days. Okay, and the current step we're on is today. You can write that in your box there. I have a box underneath the step. And the step below that one is yesterday. And the step before that one is two days ago. And the step before that one is three days ago. And you go on and on and on and on. The current step is today. The step before this one is yesterday. And so on and so forth. If the universe has gotten to today, what can we conclude? If the universe has gotten to today, what can we conclude? Exactly. If we've made it here, then there must not have been an infinite number of steps before it. There could not have been an infinite number of days before this one. 
Otherwise, what? We never would have gotten to this one, (laughs) right? An infinite distance can't be crossed. If we've made it to today, which we all have, no one can deny that, we're all here today. If we've made it to today, then there couldn't have been an infinite number of days before this. Otherwise, we would have never gotten here. The fact that we're here today is a more profound truth than most people realize. It's a profound truth because we know that if we've made it here, there cannot be an infinite number of days before this one. The universe cannot be infinitely old. Instead, the past is finite. There had to be a finite number of days before this, a limited number of days before this, in order for us to actually get here. And of course, if the past is finite, then that means that the universe, the age of the universe is limited, that the universe started to exist at some point. The universe had a beginning. All right, let's, uh, what questions do you have on this? There's got to be some questions. Questions on the argument. Questions on the analogy. The key ideas are the ones you wrote down, right? An infinite distance can't be crossed. No matter how far you are, there's always an infinite number of steps left before me. And if it's true that an infinite number of days preceded this one, then we never would have gotten to this one. The universe would have had to cross through, cross an infinite distance in order to get here, cross an infinite number of days, which isn't possible to do. All right, um, this is a very useful apologetic skill. Proving that the universe had a beginning is a very useful apologetic skill because the theological entailments are huge for this. Okay, because whatever started, if we can get to the fact that something started this rather than nothing, whatever started the universe, again, must not be bound by the things that existed prior to. It must not be bound by space or matter and time. So you can conclude that whatever started all of these things must transcend those things. And you get a lot of attributes from God. By, uh, by understanding that. Um, so this is a very powerful, uh, very powerful um, apologetic skill set to have. All right, um, I want to give you a chance to internalize this evidence and then to take turns trying to share this analogy with each other. So with the f- knowledge that that's what we're about to do, any questions you have before we take some time to do that together? Any questions that you have before we take some time to do that together? Yeah. I'm just trying to think about like the audience that this would be like if I'm sitting down and going to hear like this is this is quite simple. And I I like this is this applies for a very specific type of thing. 
Yeah, I wouldn't say that. Yeah. I think it would work for any atheist that can, can, can track the argument uh, philosophically and that is uh, interested in thinking rationally about things. Um, now, the, uh, one of the reasons why we're going to learn three different arguments in this uh, training series is because different arguments are going to work better for different people. Um, so one thing that I've done at the college campuses, for example, is, I'm not saying you should do this, but sometimes I'll ask people what their major is, and depending on what their major is, I get, you know, kind of a sense of, are they more into, like, graphic design and art stuff? If so, you know, maybe a moral argument might work better with them. Um, if they're more into science or, you know, or philosophy or something like that, then, you know, maybe something that, that, uh, that they're going to be able to track with intellectually, um, you know, might, might be better for them. Um, so that's uh, that, that, that's something that you can you definitely like you said like, like uh, you said Tina um, you need to make sure that who you're sharing w uh, this with um, it's uh, it's going to be useful for um, if you uh, if you have a um, you know a, a, a an atheistic uh, family member who is uh, who's not you know um, who's not uh, you know very uh, serious about you know uh, about thinking through things. Um, and uh, and you know wouldn't really be interested in a in a philosophical argument like that, then um, you know then something like the moral argument, which you know maybe if they have strong feelings about uh, you know about homosexuality or abortion or something like that, that's that's going to be something that might be a little bit more more pointed for them. Um, but uh, but yeah, um, this I have found to work with uh, um, with a, a number of the uh, people that I've had a chance to to share it with. Um, it doesn't work for everybody uh, by any means. Um, no argument does, but. Uh, but um, the way that I share it with you is much more involved than the way you would share it with somebody else. Um, and maybe I'll give you an example of that really quick. So the reason why we went in more in depth with this is because you need to understand this well yourself if you're going to try and explain this to somebody else. But if you're, uh, if you're talking with somebody um, and, uh, and you're kind of sharing this with them and you ask them the best way, and we're, we would talk, we're, we're going to touch on this a little bit um, later, the best way to share an argument is, uh, is not by giving a speech, it's by asking them questions and, uh, and helping them come to discover these truths themselves. So asking them, you know, what do you think about the universe? Has it always been around, or do you think it started to exist at some point? And if they say it's always been around, then you could ask them, you know, something like, uh, well, have, have you ever considered about how, you know, if there were actually an infinite number of days before this, we never would have gotten to today? No, I don't think that's true, or what do you mean by that? All right, and then you can say, you can give the example that we just gave, well, if we're on a staircase together and I'm an infinite number of stairs ahead of you and you start walking towards me right now, are you going to ever get to me? Let them think about that for a second. Oh, no, I guess I wouldn't get to you. Well, what if there were an infinite number of stairs before you? Would you have ever gotten to that step? Oh, I guess I, guess I wouldn't have gotten there. Okay, well, in the same way, if there were an infinite number of days before this one, we never would have gotten to this day, right? Yeah, I guess that's true. So then there weren't an infinite number of days before this. The past must be finite. There must have been a beginning. The universe did start to exist. The only question is, did something start it or did nothing start it, right? And just kind of keep going from there. So it doesn't have to be like a super long, um, you know, in-depth explanation. Again, you guys need, we talked about this a lot because you need to understand this for yourself if you're going to try and, and use this analogy um, with somebody. But, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's just a matter of meeting them where they're at. If, if there's a lot of pushback on this, um, you know, you can share a different argument. You might need to spend some time helping them understand it. Um, this is a very difficult argument to refute, um, and I will give you the, the, the way that, uh, um, that this is sometimes uh, uh, responded to, um, the common objections that are raised to this, but, uh, but this is a very difficult argument for, uh, for most people to refute, and one that I think that you'll find uh, pretty effective with somebody who's, who's willing to, you know, actually, actually work through some of these issues with you on a, um, on a, uh, on a little bit more of an intellectual level, thinking about did the universe really 
uh, start existing at some point, and if so, you know, what was the cause of that? All right, and any questions though on the, uh, on the analogy or the argument before we uh, give you a chance to internalize it and then practice it with each other? Any, qu any questions? All right, so do this, take three minutes, just try to internalize this analogy yourself so that you can share it with others. I think you had three statements on there that you filled in the blanks for. Just try to learn those. You don't need to know them word for word, but just try to know them well enough so that you can, you can bring out those points with people. You won't share those points every time, but they would be helpful to know. Again, just take a few minutes to try to, to get that in your head for yourself. Well, that's good. I'm, I'm glad that you said that because we're going to take a minute to try to explain it. Please actually do this. Get together with a workout partner, ideally not your spouse. Get together with a workout partner and just try to explain this analogy to somebody else. And when you do this, again, you're not quizzing the other person. Help them get there if you're not, if, if, it's, if it's not working. If, if, if you're struggling, help the other person along. Spot them, if you will. And, uh, and, and get to the point where they're able to, to share this analogy well on their own. Um, so just take a few minutes to do that. I'll walk around. If you uh, have a question or something, just raise your hand, and I can come over and try and help, um, you know, help with anything. But, uh, but yeah, take a few minutes and, uh, and take turns explaining it to one another.
to interrupt you guys. Don't feel like you have to do a role play, like where you have to, uh, you know, you have to have an actual conversation with each other. Um, just take turns, just actually sharing the analogy, just explaining it. And uh, again, if, if the other person is struggling to explain it, then just kind of help guide them along as they explain it. But don't feel like you have to, you know, have dialogue and ask each other questions. Um, that's too hard, and uh, sometimes people feel uncomfortable anyway. So. <laughs>
All right, let's, uh, we got to wrap things up for tonight. So I want to ask, did any questions come out as you were trying to explain this with each other? Any questions come out? Again, the only one that we really want to learn is this one. You can remember the other ones if you want. You can forget them if you want. This one will be good enough for most people that you talk with. Um, it'll, be, it'll be good enough for most people. You, talk, you do not need to know the scientific evidences. And I'm going to share one more philosophical one that you also don't need to know. Again, that, that's more just for you to be familiar with the additional evidences that are out there. You can go explore them more if you want. Um, but this one is, is uh, probably the easiest one, the most intuitive one um, for people to grasp. And, uh, and it is uh, helpful from my experience um, sharing this analogy with people to try and help them understand why, uh, why the universe couldn't have always existed. Um, there couldn't have been an infinite number of days before this one. Otherwise, we never would have gotten to this one. And, uh, and um, I know for me when I learned this argument, um, uh, seeing that, wow, there's, there's, an, there's actual, um, that uh, we, we can know e even apart from the revelation that we have in God's word, that uh, the universe began at a def definite point. Um, that can be a, uh, um, uh, for, for, for people that grasp that for the first time, that realize that for the first time, that can be an eye-opening uh, realization. Um, because then, of course, the question moves on from, you know, the universe started to, all right, well, <laughs> well what's, the story, what's the story behind that, right? Um, so we'll talk more about that next week. Um, we'll finish learning this argument next week. Not only these other premises, these are much easier than this one. Um, but then, of course, how we know that this is something that actually started the universe is God. Um, so we'll, we'll get to that next week. Um, and before that, we'll also address some of the objections that people raise to this. Um, but while it's fresh in your minds, any other questions you have on this analogy, on this philosophical evidence? Yeah, Grandma? Again, yeah, if an atheist is consistent, they have to believe that the universe is eternal or in most cases today that the multiverse is eternal because there's pretty strong evidence that this universe is not. Um, or they have, to, they have to believe that the universe um, came into existence from nothing. Has to be one of those or both of those, um, but minimally one of those if they're going to be consistent. Now, not, most people that you talk to are not very consistent in their worldview, um, in which case... Uh, simply showing that this is a logical entailment from these, um, these things which they may already accept could be sufficient for them. Um, and uh, I was going to talk a little bit more about the art of sharing this argument next time, um, but uh, if somebody already agrees with the fact the universe began to exist, I personally wouldn't spend time sharing with them the evidence for it. If they already agree with it, just move on to the next step. Um, or maybe if they agree with it, but it sounds like they don't really have a sure foundation for it, maybe just make a you know, simple statement like, um, yeah, you know, there's a lot of scientific and philosophical evidence for the universe having a beginning, uh, one of which is that if there were an infinite number of days before this one, we never would have gotten to this one, and then just leaving it that and moving on. Um, you don't want to spend a lot of time um, developing something that they don't need to, to, to get, and you don't want to put, you know, an undue, um, an undue mental or intellectual burden on them um, when, you're already, when you already have more work that is actually necessary. Uh, if it's not necessary, most of the time, don't bother sharing it. Yeah, Mark, what was your question? Oh, I was going to ask, just rephrase something that you just kind of got it right. If there's an infinite number of steps, let's just say, before and after, then there really isn't any steps, right? I mean, it's just one step. Yeah, I don't know about that, but what you would say is it would be impossible to get to any step. Okay. It'd be impossible to get to any step. So it almost removes time and our, our understanding of 
So So that, that's pretty similar to the uh, most common objection to this. Yeah, the most common objection to this, um, or at least the, the strongest objection to this, most people will not know this, the strongest objection to this is that that's not the way time works, that our experience of time is actually an illusion. It might sound like a bizarre view, but that's actually probably the most common view among physicists today, um, that all points in time are equally real, past, present, and future, and that our experience of time, um, temporal becoming, as it's, as it's called, is, uh, is, uh, is, um, is, is subjective, not an objective feature of reality. Um, you don't need to be aware of that. Most people you talk with will have no idea that there's actually uh, something other than the common sense view of time, which is that only the present is real, the past no longer exists, and the future doesn't exist yet. That's probably the true view of time. I'll briefly explain why that's the case next time. No pun intended. Um, but, uh, <laughs> um, sorry, that was funny to me. Um, <laughs> But uh, we, that again, that m most people who hold to a common sense view of time, this will work well for. Um, but yeah, that mark is, uh, is pretty similar to one of the, the stronger objections to this. Um, the good news is, even if um, the, uh, that particular view of time I talked about is correct, there's another philosophical evidence that still makes uh, it difficult, I would say impossible, to avoid the fact that the universe had a beginning. Um, so I'll share that one with you next time. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's great, Patricia. We'll, we'll talk about that next time. Again, the next step is that the universe was started by something or nothing, and that since it wasn't started by nothing, it must have been started by something. And it's very simple to prove that the universe wasn't started by nothing because nothing properly defined is no thing, right? And no thing. If something's not a thing, that means it has no properties. It's everythingless. It's touchless. It's tasteless. It's soundless. It's abilityless. And that includes abilities to start universes. <laughs> nothing has no ability to start a universe. Nothing doesn't have the ability to do anything. It's no thing, right? And therefore, nothing couldn't have started the universe. Nothing can't do anything, right? It must have been something, which leads us to the conclusion that something started the universe, right? So we'll talk about that more next time, but these next two steps are much easier than this one. Um, and again, the only one that I really want you to know is this philosophical evidence, even though the other ones are good to be familiar with too. All right, thank you guys. You've been very patient as always. If you have other questions, you can uh, just let me know afterwards, but let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank, thank you for this time. We pray that you would be pleased to help us uh, become effective defenders of the truth and uh, that you would be pleased to help us um, to know these arguments well enough to be able to share them uh, in an effective and winsome manner with people in our lives who, uh, who, don't, uh, who don't have a knowledge of the truth yet, who don't believe the truth yet. And we pray that you would use us to bring many into a right relationship with you and to an agreement um, with the true, essential truth claims of, uh, of your word and of your gospel. We pray all this in your name and for your glory. Amen.